This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, non-appointment TV and news, Don Ostroff, president of Condé Nast Entertainment, will be here to chat about the present and future of how and what we watch, and how the brands of Condé Nast may influence our decisions. And later, we'll welcome the current it man of online news, Ben Smith, wunderkind of Politico, and for the last two years, editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, to tell us 29 reasons why Siamese cats really like polyoptics. But first, as we put the show to bed last week, I was monitoring the late-night document flow from the president's Sunnyland summit at Palm Desert with Chinese President Xi. It was tough to criticize outgoing National Security Advisor Tom Donilon for staging a polyoptics perfect extended cut of a bilateral. Let's do the numbers. Eight hours under the desert sunshine, a private one-on-one talk, a park bench gift from President Obama to the billions of people of China. I tweeted out my kudos. What could go wrong at that point? Well, a 29-year-old crusader with an axe to grind and a top-secret clearance revealing a program that ain't top-secret no more. For national security and political watchers, it's been all Ed Snowden all the time, with a dollop of immigration and other stuff thrown in. As we tape, Snowden's still on the lam somewhere, we assume in Hong Kong, a peculiar place for a man on the run, a man who with Glenn Greenwald, promises even more revelations to come. But we can't allow ourselves to get paralyzed by such things, with Game of Thrones put to bed for another season, and only two episodes left of Mad Men. Attention shifts to the Boston Bruins Stanley Cup run and the arrival of season two of The Newsroom. You wonder, how might Will McAvoy stomach the NSA's PRISM program, the DOJ's seizure of the AP's phone records, and the investigation of leaks to Fox News reporter James Rosen. Man, Aaron Sorkin has a lot to work with for seasons on end based on the way the last few weeks have gone. But if you're not cuddling up with your loved one for an hour, perhaps with only a few minutes to spare and an iPad on your lap, a huge new world awaits. Condé Nast Entertainment, the video arm of brands like Vogue, Glamour, and Wired, offers a rich vein of program for, I would say, most audiences. And with me now to talk about it is Don Ostroff, president of Condé Nast Entertainment. Welcome, Don, to Polyoptics. Oh, thank you for having me. First, let me say an introduction that you got your start in TV news in the Miami-Dade market. You ran CW during its Gossip Girl heyday and came to Condé Nast in 2001. And you and I first met maybe 15 years ago when you were running programming at Lifetime Television. And after a good deal of audience research, you selected history will recall any day now with Annie Potts as your first dramatic TV series passing on Annabeth Gish, Marsha Cross and what I might humbly suggest was a gold mine in our show West Wing. Well I can't disagree I mean I uh, I remember that show so well it's the pilot that we did together Josh and over the years you do so many different shows but I distinctly remember West Wing's pilot you know the script it was it was it was a great project, and I always regretted that we didn't go forward with it, but I do think we were ahead of our time. For listeners who've heard me talk about the show in the past, uh, it was uh, um, 
Jonathan Prince was executive producer. Uh, Tammy Ader. Tammy Ader was executive producer and writer. It had Alan Arkish as the pilot director. Had all the right things going for it. When I went to the uh, shoot in Toronto, I did feel like it didn't have that verisimilitude that Aaron Sorkin was able to do a year later. So I don't know if on film it captured the, this is really the White House or this is a bunch of Canadians trying to pretend it's the White House. Hmm. Well, it's so interesting because don't forget, you know, different uh, networks program for different audiences. So Lifetime clearly was a network targeting women at that time. And although I think Any Day Now really became a signature piece for the network, and the network ultimately became the number one cable network, which people were very surprised about because we only targeted women. So how can we become the number one network? But the programming did resonate. And, um, you know, it, it took us a few years to figure out our rhythm. And in the early days when we did that pilot, we weren't sure really where our audience would lie. And so it was it was a bit of a fishing expedition for us in those early days. But in hindsight, when you look at the different projects we did wind up making, I think that there was there were elements of, of West Wing that really would have worked with for us over the years. Because you certainly had the ability to do some of the soap opera moments. I mean, I watched Scandal, yep. which is such a great show and combines the the storylines of you know Washington with all of the melodrama of people's personal lives. And there's something to be said about that. And the refrain that we got so many times was Washington shows have been tried and never worked. But over seven seasons at NBC, Aaron Sorkin proved the model out and then millions, uh, not millions, but scores of derivatives followed. Yes, they really did. In fact, I wound up developing another Washington show when I was at the CW that never made it and again came so close to getting on the air, which was about Washington interns. And it was, again, one of my favorite projects. It really had all of the fascination of Washington as the backdrop and all of the you know, melodrama of the lives of these interns who, as you know, you know they, they, they all make you know, very little money and they're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed coming into Washington and they learn so much in those few years. And each of the, uh, the main characters were following different, uh, different people in Washington, you know, senator and, and obviously someone at the White House. And, and so I think that there are different ways to capture subjects. You know, you and I just spoke about this. Um, Les Moonves, who is one of my mentors and was my boss for many years, always said, you know, there are only X number of ideas out there to really, you know, write a script about or do a film about or a TV show about so it's all about the execution. It's about the characters. And when I think about television and film in particular, you know, you look at those two mediums and you say, what's really the difference? And I always feel that when you're, when you're making a film, it's about that big storyline because people are coming in to see the story. When you're doing a TV show, it's about the characters right. because you have to bring them back week after week after week. So people have to be very invested in the relationships of those characters. Otherwise, it's hard to bring them back. So it's not getting them in that theater that one time. It's getting them to the TV set seven years in a row, which is quite a feat. I want to get specifically to what you're doing at Condé Nast Entertainment in a minute. But on the theme of Washington-based TV shows and on the challenge that you have to bring to make viewers conditioned to watching programming online, what's been your quick reaction to the latest Washington entry, House of Cards, on Netflix this year? 
I think it's it's a stunning show. It really is. I, I don't know if it's as as real as it feels when you're watching it, and, and you could comment on that better than I. But I, I do feel that the show is really striking a chord because, first of all, the way in which we can view that show feels so different to us. You know, binge viewing, as people call it, is is now becoming more commonplace and to be able to watch something brand new and see it at your own pace and you know if you want to watch I've been binge viewing Cindy Levy all morning believe (laughs) me (laughs) you know and I think that needless to say you know the writing and the acting it's in the direction David Fincher is just really such quality work and what we're going to start to see is, you know, House of Cards, I think, will be nominated for, for awards. And it's it's really opening up a whole new place for us to be able to get original content, not only just the library content that Netflix and, and other uh, digital platforms now offer. One always asks, for a guy like me who comes across from Washington with an idea in his hand and an agent and an a EP like Tammy and Jonathan who might have an opportunity, we get into a room with people like Kelly Good and you, and you always wonder, where do these network executives come from? And for you, it started in Miami, Florida and TV News, didn't it? Well, I started actually in radio. Um and uh, I was very young. I was originally answering request lines at a top 40 station in Miami. And then I figured out news was of great interest. And I wound up really just sitting as a sort of fly on the wall in, in the newsroom in at the radio station. And ultimately, I basically begged a, a, a news director to put me on the air at a station called WINZ, which was, you know, all news radio. I think it was a CBS affiliate. And uh, I'm shocked they didn't fire me because I couldn't pronounce half of the words. And in those days, you know, you had sort of the AP wire and you just read the news right off the wire. And I was working the graveyard shift. And, you know, my my parents always told the funny story, which is uh, when I was when I was a reporter, uh, Gary Upremian was the kicker for the New York Jets. For the Miami Miami Dolphins. Dolphins, Miami Miami Dolphins. And, you know, I I had no idea how his name was spelt. And I I was reading, you know, about the game and I just had ripped it off the newswire and I got to Gary Upremian and it's spelt in such an odd way. With the O instead of the Y at the end. And and it was was like one of those, like, just radio silent for 10 seconds, which of course in, in radio time feels like it's a minute. And uh, I came home that night, and my parents said, you know, it's a great effort. We're so proud of you that you got this far. And I waited for the call to be fired, and nobody ever called. And I went on, and eventually, you know, it became, uh, you know, second nature to be on the air and just read things right off of a wire. But that's where I started and and then became a reporter and then ultimately worked in television in Miami. Uh, Days of Miami Vice, Michael Mann, Crockett and Tubbs. What were some of the stories that you covered while you were on the air? Well, it's funny. Part of the reason why I left the news world was because it was so intense in Miami. I was quite young. And aside from the local news of, you know, covering tragedies that happen to people every day and having to be there with a microphone, putting, you know, the microphone in somebody's face who had just lost a loved one, it was, it's, it's a very, very tough job, and people don't realize that. But on top of that, we had hijackings. We had, um, you know, the Colombians and, and, you know, the mafia at the time all, you know, 
running all over Miami, um, and we had the Mariel Boatlift. We had so many big news stories. So if you look at that era in news in Miami and you see the national reporters who came from that era, it was Steve Croft, Richard Schlesinger, um, Bernard Goldberg, Katie Couric started down there. I mean, there were so many big reporters because you couldn't get better experience in a local market. And they all were obviously picked to go into national news. And I opted to go into entertainment where I go could. Go west, young woman. Go west, where I just felt, you know, I could laugh and have a good time. And although sometimes people in entertainment, we feel like we're performing brain surgery, the reality is we're just trying to make people laugh or, you know, escape for, for an hour or two. And in my mind, it was just a, a better way for me to make a living. And I never looked back. And I just have incredible respect for people who do work in the news because I know how hard it is, not only physically, but Emotionally, it is really a very difficult way to, to spend your, your days. We're talking with Don Ostroff, president of Condé Nast Entertainment. And from Lifetime, it was then to UPN, and then really forming from scratch the CW. And I want to listen to just one quintessential piece of, uh, of the content that CW created in the last decade and tell us how that evolved for you. It's exciting to look back in celebration of, of the last six years. You really go out with some guy you don't know? Well, you can't be worse than the guys I do know. It's been a long, fantastic ride. Everyone's enjoyed it immensely. I'm Chuck Bass, and I love you. I could have never expected that I would be able to play a character for six years that's so well-written and challenging. Haven't you heard? I'm the crazy bitch around here. Love is need, love is and I'm impressed. We're shooting in Manhattan. It doesn't get any better than that. Goods out on display. Feel a little like Alice in Wonderland. Manhattan will do that to a girl. It was just such a love affair with the city and everything that it has to offer, from fashion to food to music. New York has never seen more perfect. There's a knit girl in every corner. Stop. Don't get carried away. Don Ostroff, Gossip Girl did a little bit better than my West Wing project, didn't it? Well, it, it did become <laughs> quite the phenomenon. How did it come about for you? And for, the, and for the CW? You know, it was uh, a, a series of books that were was brought to uh, to me by Peter Roth, who's the president of Warner Brothers Television, um, and uh, Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage, the executive producers. And quite honestly, when I first read it, I said, how are we going to do this for television? I mean, this is almost, you know, it's, it's almost too provocative to do for network television. And, and uh, to Peter Roth's credit and Josh and Stephanie, they said, you know, we really have a take on this. We feel we can really do this and, and, and make a show that everyone will be proud of. And so we wound up uh, making the pilot. Actually, you know, when I got the script in, it was probably one of the only scripts that I've ever gotten in. And before I could even finish the pilot script, I knew there was no doubt we were making the script. So I um, read the script, and within a matter of you know hours, I sent it to, uh, to Les Moonves. I said, we're making it. This is fantastic. And he read it, and he said, you're right. So it, we, we knew right away we had something special. And then the casting process was really difficult because at the CW, we always cast mostly unknowns, and it's all young people who are up and coming. And so they don't usually have as much acting experience as, you know, the, the more established uh, actors that you would find on other networks. So Josh and Stephanie have an amazing eye for young talent. And uh, we wound up casting uh, Blake Lively. Um, I would say probably she was the first or second cast member that we, we wound up casting. And then Leighton Meester uh, came in, and she was such a great actress. She really had, you know, that, that, that charisma. 
And within a short period of time, the cast members just fell into place. And when we saw the pilot and we saw how Josh and Stephanie um, and, and uh, the director kind of captured New York in this really unusual way where they almost heightened everything. Right. You know, it, it became... So a, bright. So bright, um, you know, from the set to the fashion to the music and, and even the scripts in a way. You know, everything I always say about that show was heightened because it wasn't really high school kids. They weren't high school kids who weren't drinking martinis at a bar, but everything was heightened. And so there was a fantasy element that, you know, I think really resonated. It's funny, to get in the studio today, we had to navigate our way through the graduation of Dalton School, and if they only knew that the, <laughs> that the prime driver behind Gossip Girl was walking in their midst, they'd probably go crazy. That's funny, because I, I have to say, with my kids, that is definitely my claim to fame with, uh, with all their friends. But I'll tell you an interesting little tidbit about um, Gossip Girl, which was, was so surprising. So, you know, obviously, it's very successful in, uh, in the U.S., and, and we knew that it um, certainly struck a chord. But at uh, probably the second or third year that we were doing the show, um, we had a meeting with uh, producers who were working uh, in China. And they came in and they said, well, you know, we want to talk to you about one of your shows. And we said, great. And they said, Gossip Girl. And I said, really? And I was sort of really surprised. And I said, yeah, we want to remake Gossip Girl in 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 China and I, I said boy I'm so surprised because I wouldn't think that that would be something that's relatable and it turned out that the number one streamed show most illegally obviously um, in China was Gossip Girl wow. over CSI over any of the big established shows because everything could be found online but that was the show that was the number one show and people were obsessed about it so they actually wound up shooting our scripts in uh, I think Mandarin and producing the show in China. So you never know when something's going to be a hit. So from South Florida to L.A., how are you drawn back or drawn to New York and this idea of starting up CNE, Condé Nast Entertainment, basically, again, from scratch, 100 years of a print legacy, titles like Vanity Fair, New Yorker, Glamour, Vogue, uh, now Wired, uh, what are they telling to Don Ostroff that is alluring to say this is going to be the next chapter of my career? So it was very simple because I walked in um, to Condé Nast and uh, I met with Anna Wintour and I met with Bob Sauerberg, the president of, of Condé Nast. And, and basically Bob said to me, you know, we have all of this content. We have these magazines. We have the brands. We have the articles inside the magazines. We have all of the editors who work here. We need to figure out how to start to take all this onto other platforms. You know, we're a media company, not a publishing company. How do we start to really take all of this, all of the, all of this, all of these assets and all of this content? And when you look back at the history of Condé Nast, it's fascinating to see how many films have come from the pages of the magazine, from Brokeback Mountain, Beautiful Mind, Eat, Pray, Love. Even Argo started as an article in Wired Magazine. And so the company has never really participated, either creatively or financially, in any of those films. But now more and more of these media companies have to look at, at properties and, and do a 360. And so um, I, you know took a look at all the assets and we have over 60,000 articles in the archives and we publish every month in the case of New Yorker every week and we put together a business plan that allows us to do features 
TV, reality, and scripted. Um, and we started a digital video network where we've already launched four of our channels. We've launched GQ Glamour, Vogue, and Wired. And um, we've announced that we're going to be launching more channels by the end of this year. And we are really looking at the digital space as almost the next horizon for entertainment. And when I was sitting at the CW, which really targeted 18 to 34-year-olds, we saw a huge migration of young people starting to get their content on the digital platforms. And so for me, it was very clear that this is where the future will be someday. Now, whether that day is in three years or 10 years or 15 years, but it's, it's, it's migrating there. And um, I felt I really wanted to understand the business. I wanted to be a part of it. And this was a great way for me to start something and obviously learn about the business as it grows. I have to say, we were talking earlier and I've, I expressed my fondness for the long form podcast, which is expanding greatly even as we speak. This show is part of that because I'm a 47 year old dad and I'm often doing dishes or mowing the lawn or uh, going out for a jog. And I like to have something in my ears. But uh, I did spend in a advance of our conversation today a while going through some of the new shows and I think there are 30 new shows across those four brands right now and I want to talk about a couple of them that I've really enjoyed so far so let's let's start with this guy who I'd never heard of before on the Wired channel the angry nerd I've had a chance to watch the Hobbit an unexpected journey a few more times since it was released on DVD I have two major complaints first the dwarves and Bilbo are clearly not riding ponies. Give him a pony. Those are full-grown horses wrapped in shag carpet. Second, I think we can all agree that the pacing of the film is way off. It is far, far too short. Angry Nerd, very good viewing. Yeah, it. you know, it's so funny. Each of these magazines have such distinct personalities and brand tenants. And so, you know, for us, it's a combination of tapping into what's already in the magazine and also expanding what they could be doing. I almost say approach this as if you were going to start a cable network. Like, What kind of content would you do? So some of the content like Angry Nerd comes from the magazine. Fighting Weight on GQ and 10 Essentials come from the magazine. But then we'll also do content that's a little less expected. Um, some of it could be more like a reality show. Um, in one case, uh, GQ, we even financed a documentary called Casualties of the Gridiron, right. which focuses on ex-NFL players and the physical and, and mental issues they face, and a woman who's taken it upon herself to try and help them get the best medical attention and also create support groups for them. And, you know, Tony Dorsett and many other uh, iconic players are in this documentary, which which I think is going to be quite powerful, but this is going to be released digitally on GQ. And so, you know, what I love about this medium is, first of all, you know, you can do some content that's a minute or two minutes and just fun and shareable and, it, you know, it's, it's fun to look at. Or you can do something really intense like a documentary and everything in between. And so there's no rules about how long it has to be. You know, you can do any kind of content and it's the consumer viewer's choice as to what they're in the mood to watch at any given time. Let's just geek out for a second because you walk in 2011 to a legacy publishing empire, Condé Nast. Uh, how do you actually give them the production facilities, the ability to actually make these pieces? How are you staffing up and equipping the facilities to turn out some of the content that you're now 
is turning out on a regular basis? Well, it's a combination of things. Most of the brands make their own video content, but just in, you know, n- not in, in great quantity. So, so they always do some things, right? But our whole business plan is being able to release content every day, Monday through Friday, so that there's always something for the viewer to come back to Vogue or GQ or Glamour or Wired. And so you know something fresh is going to be there. We um, make some of the content on our own, but we're also working with some of the best producers uh, you know, in, in, in the Hollywood community, uh, radical media. Um, we're working with uh, original media. We're working with Magical Elves, who produces Project One- Runway and many other shows. Um, Hudson Media. We're working with different documentary filmmakers. So it, it's a combination of creating some of the content in-house and then also working with outside producers, depending upon what the project is and who's best suited to produce it for us. Talking about some of the documentary uh, footage with Don Ostroff, president of Condé Nast Entertainment, one of the other things that was a great discovery for me was The Window uh, on the Wired channel. And this is a piece from... Uh, the most, the largest, most expensive transportation project in U.S. history that's happening right now, right beneath our feet, and we don't see it at all. And right. here's a little bit from the show. 150 feet below Grand Central Terminal, there's another terminal being created to bring the Long Island Railroad into Grand Central Terminal area in New York City. As rock stands for a period of time, it uh, tends to relax and it tends to get loose and it tends to fall out. It has to be watched constantly. It's not a good environment to be lax. You have to be on your toes all the time and you have to be well aware of what's going on around you and what the people are doing next to you and what you're doing next to them. You're dealing with people who you're depending on and who are depending on you. And that gives the uh, sense of satisfaction and camaraderie that typical day-to-day office jobs don't have. Very different from Angry Nerd. visually arresting and beautiful and also uh, highly educational and something that I'd never seen before. So the idea behind the window is to go into um, different worlds where engineering feats are, you know, commonplace. So it could be something, as you said, like the Second Avenue Tunnel that's being built, or it could be the Barclay Center, which transforms from being a concert hall to being a basketball stadium in the middle of the night. And it takes, you know, an incredible amount of people and organizational uh, skill, and it's it's almost like a uh, like like a fine-tuned machine how the whole uh, stadium turns over. Um, and we have other shows that are going to go behind factories and sort of anything that really is 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 interesting to see on the inside that you would never even know happens. And I think the the tunnel example is the perfect example. Who knew what was going on underneath our feet? So it's a it's it's a great opportunity to do sort of you know again something that gives people um, you know a, a content that they would never normally probably see. There's another thing too, and I had my old classmate uh, Cindy Levy on the show from uh, we went to school together at Swarthmore, and she was on maybe six months ago, and I'd always watched her appearances on the Today Show, you know, in the nine o'clock hour, and sort of said to myself, well, that's not quite her demo, but uh, at least she's getting her her story out from what Glamour is doing. And I watched a couple of clips from uh, her runway show. I want to hear a little bit of that. And because it is Condé Nast, it has Glamour and Vogue and a very different feel, too, from the Second Avenue Tunnel. Mm-hmm. 
several years ago. Our photo director, Suzanne, and I had the opportunity to go to the White House to photograph and interview Michelle Obama, and Suzanne was wearing one of her Maria Cornejo dresses, and Mrs. Obama entered the room and immediately said to Suzanne, I love your dress. And that's what Maria does. She makes incredibly distinctive things that become talking points, conversation points. The color is fantastic. There are always elements with really unusual drapings, and she's just awesome. So we've been talking about uh, Wired, but also Glamour and Vogue are, your, are on your current uh, channel list as well. What are the really a different kind of visual presentation than some of the technical stuff? So obviously, you know, targeting more women, uh, makeovers, and we talk about fashion, and we talk about relationships, and we talk about careers, and so it gives us great freedom to do many different types of programs. So with Cindy, we did something called Ride Along, where we followed her for a week of, of the fashion week, which women are really interested in seeing really what goes on behind the scenes. And then for someone like Cindy, who was willing to open up her personal life, we even went home with her to see how she juggles both, you know, raising a family uh, while she's trying to keep up with an incredibly demanding schedule. And then we we do things like elevator makeover, which is sort of self-explanatory. We have a little bit of that, too. Let's hear a little of elevator makeover. Okay. Not necessarily my cup of tea. <laughs> Lots of women applied for a chance at a makeover, and we've been secretly following the ones who were chosen all week. Each woman is now headed to a very important event and has no idea that her makeover is happening right now. I'm Theodore, glamour hair and fashion contributor. And I'm Jessica. This is Elevator Makeover, where we literally do everything in an elevator to make a girl look Fabulous. Wow. So, well, I'll tell you something that's really interesting. So, you know, Theodore Leaf, who's a contributing editor to Vogue and has worked, uh, to Glamour, and has worked very hard on his social media presence and has done a great job, is paired with a woman named Jessica Harlow in that show. And Jessica Harlow has incredible reach um, uh, through her YouTube channel. And so the idea here is how do we take Glamour and start to really have the YouTube uh, viewers start to think of Glamour as a place to come and get content. And so taking someone like Jessica Harlow, who has tremendous following, and putting her on a Glamour show brings her viewers in, we bring Theodore's viewers in, and we start to really migrate people and start to have them think of of Glamour as not only a, a great magazine, but also a great channel to get video. So uh, it's it's a fun show. I have to say one of the most successful shows we've done because the engagement in the digital space is one of the key indicators as to how well you're doing. And the fact that viewers are commenting and, you know, have lots to say about the shows and they have a takeaway where they get tips on, you know, what we just showed in the elevator makeover is one of the big uh, one of the big wins for the viewer. So it it begs the question, uh, Don Ostroff. Uh, we've talked about some of the Condé Nast brands, but the two that I subscribe to, you see my subscription labels, mm -hmm. are New Yorker and Vanity Fair. Uh, sometimes dealing with heavier, uh, weightier, longer form topics. Uh, what are we going to see from those brands through Condé Nast Entertainment? Well, you know, we've got films that we're developing um, actually from, from both Vanity Fair and The New Yorker. Um, and we've already announced that Vanity Fair is going to be a digital video channel, which will launch in the summer. So for, you know, Vanity Fair, obviously you've got, again, a wide range of different, you know, subjects that you can cover. They have uh, five brand tenants, which is 
politics, um, culture, as we say, with a big C and a small C, meaning pop culture and culture. Um, they have Hollywood, uh, business. And I, I think what's really interesting about Vanity Fair is that, you know, there's a, a sense of humor to a lot of the the, the, the different uh, pieces that Vanity Fair has in the front of the magazine. There's, there's just, you know, a wit and uh, and 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 a and a, and a and a sense of humor that can translate very well into the digital platform. So that's part of what we're going to tap into. And I think um, Graydon uh, is is really excited about the the idea that we can do really sort of more fun things with this content. And I respect Graydon so much because aside from Vanity Fair, one of m- my favorite magazines was Spy magazine. Absolutely, which, you from know, the 1980s. From the 1980s, and you know. That sensibility is again something that plays so well. And so, short-fingered vulgarians. Yeah. Wow, you really do remember. Yeah. But he. So. So you know that's kind of part of the approach that we can take when we look at Vanity Fair for the digital video space. It doesn't have to all be very serious, heavy yeah. pieces. But well, Julie Weiner is doing a lot of very funny blogging for Vanity mm-hmm. Fair right now. She's been a guest of the show as well. We could go on and on, and I can't wait to uh, watch some more episodes and, and wait for the debut and the premiere of Vanity Fair's channel uh, this summer, and uh, I hope you'll come back again once maybe some of the uh, full-length TV series and the, um, and the films projects are in development. I'd love to. Thank you so much for having me. Don Ostroff, president of Condé Nast Entertainment, uh, and my old executive in charge of production of West Wing, the never-seen pilot from Lifetime Television. Thank you very much. Thank you. POTUS. POTUS. History in the making. Sirius XM 124. So I'm joined now by Ben Smith, editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed.com. Ben, as as all of my listeners will probably know, uh, got his start uh, uh, in New York and then was drawn to uh, become one of the most celebrated writers for Politico uh, with Messrs. Uh, Harris, Van de Hei, and Allen. Uh, and he is definitely the it man in online journalism. I think that once you get profiled uh, or become one of the major uh, uh, subjects of the video that's played at the White House Correspondents Association dinner before the president is introduced, you can uh, fairly comfortably say you have arrived. Ben Smith, thanks for arriving at Polyoptics. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on for the kind words. Take us through the mind of your Twitter feed the last, uh, uh, I won't even say 24 hours in your line of work, but the last few hours. What's been in front of your eyeballs? You know, I forget it as soon as I tweet it, so it's a it's, it's a little hard to remember. But I don't know. I mean, I think it's like it's a pretty interesting moment, isn't it, in Washington in terms of kind of a new, I think, disillusionment with Obama among in the among Washington liberals over this over the NSA story, and then kind of a kind of everyone holding their breath to see what the rest of the country thinks. Do you think Obama really cares? I'm sure he's furious that some kid has gone and leaked all this stuff. He's not a big fan of leaks. Obviously, as we found out over um, the last couple I mean, of years. I think, I think people around him basically think that Americans don't much care and that it'll blow over. And that that's certainly how they're acting. And is that sort of the story of, of the last uh, eight years of, of politics, too, that um, when I was working for President Clinton and we had a problem, it might last... Uh, several weeks, and now seem, problems seem to last. They've gone from a, a shelf life of three days to maybe a day. 
Yeah, things. I mean, it's certainly true that things burn like really, really hot and fast. That's certainly true. Sort of micro scandals have this very intense cycle, and if you're in the middle of one, you feel like it's going to totally kill you. But then they also vanish sort of as quickly as as, as they've come. I, I, that hasn't, you know. But there's a sense of embattlement around the White House right now that I think is new. That these things aren't going away. That they're changing broadly, changing Americans' perceptions of this president and of the White House. I don't know. I mean, I think you know, it's all the jury's still out on a lot of this stuff, though. Yeah, I, look, I've there's it goes a little bit to the core of the man too, which was even Bill Clinton in the height of impeachment uh, could get on a plane and travel to a far flung country and uh, be shown a new way of making pizza and get very happy. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, he really enjoyed himself uh, probably every most of the eight years of the presidency. I think President Bush uh, somewhat less. President Obama, I do have to wonder aloud. Uh, even on his best days, how much he's really loving the job. Yeah, he's not. I mean, he's not a he's not somebody who wears his emotions on his. He's a very cool guy. Um, this is, but he, I mean, I do think there are moments in being president really is not very fun, and this this does seem like one of them. Let's hear a little bit of uh, of Ed Snowden, and I want to get your take on what it represents as a news story, as reported by mm-hmm. Glenn Greenwald and, and Laura Poitras. Any analyst at any time can target anyone, uh, any selector anywhere. Where those uh, communications will be picked up depends on the range of the sensor networks and the authorities that that analyst is uh, empowered with. Not all analysts have the ability to target everything, but I, sitting at my desk, uh, certainly have the authorities to, to wiretap anyone from you or your accountant to a federal judge to even the president if I had a personal email. Ben Smith, as I was watching the end of the summit at Sunnylands last week with President Xi and President Obama, had to give props to Tom Donilon for putting on a very good show of eight hours of bilats and the private walk and the, the gift of the bench, and it seemed like uh, they had done everything right. And then suddenly burst onto the scene was Glenn's reporting and, and the video that Laura created in Hong Kong. What did you think when you first saw this appear? I mean, you know, a lot, of, a lot of different things, right? I mean, I do think there are sort of elements of, the, of that specific claim that you played that are um, a little hard to square, like how exactly he was going to wiretap the president. Um, and maybe, I, so I'm not totally, I'm not really sure what, uh, you know, what, what that meant. I mean, more broadly, I mean, I think what is really interesting about this story to me is that Snowden so clearly is like an Internet person. You know, he's somebody who's totally familiar to me and to lots of folks here at BuzzFeed as, you know, like a... I mean, we just had a big story about this, but as somebody who really kind of came of age on Ars Technica forums in the kind of mid-2000s and who was really, like, ideologically and personally and aesthetically shaped by this conversation, online conversation, you know, it used to be somebody comes into the news and you go and, like, quickly find their, like the, like the Boston bombers. You find little um, shreds of their lives online, and that's maybe the first thing you find, but then you go deeper and you talk to people who know them and you get kind of the real story. But there's also a generation of people who really fully grew up online. And Snowden does seem like that. You really kind of see, it seems like that's where he's from and where his views were shaped in these sort of forums that were in some ways the predecessor of the conversations that now happen on Reddit, where the ideal, where there's this, you know, free information is very, very sort of foundational. And and there's this sort of paranoia about government that's very baked in. And it's just really interesting to see somebody who kind of grew up in that milieu, you know, becoming a really pivotal figure in well, global affairs. What was the editorial process for you and your colleagues after the Snowden story broke? Uh, curious about what you thought. One, here's the whistleblower, but here's like immediate video of the whistleblower. What do we do with that? Two, 
uh, let's dig a little deeper, as you say, because uh, so much of his life, even his purported girlfriend's life, is online. You you read this may be Ed Snowden's gr- girlfriend. That seemed that was a story on BuzzFeed. So, you're uh, Ben Smith. You're in the BuzzFeed. And even if you, if you look at the pictures of his girlfriend, like the aesthetic is like very internet. I mean, it's just interesting. It's amazing. It sort of gives you the sense of where they're from. Like those are the sort of pictures of your girlfriend you'd post to Reddit with the like subject line like look what my girlfriend brought me for breakfast and it would be like a picture of her in her underwear carrying it's like nouveau clockwork orange a little bit so when you see the guardian having this big scoop i mean everyone wants to play in the sandbox uh what's editorially and staff wise uh how do you guys spring into action what angles are you going to cover how do you cover it I mean, this, you know, this is a very hard story for anybody to catch The Guardian on. They did an amazing job, and Glenn has been out there for years kind of waiting for this story and in some way kind of predicting this story. And and so, but I mean, you know, they have all these documents. There's no, it, like, there's no matching them on that stuff. Um, it's kind of cool. I mean, they're a great news organization. It's really cool to see them kind of thrive like this. I mean, I think there are all these in, lots and lots of questions around Washington about, you know, about what's next, about what Congress is going to do, about how they're going to react, about... And I think one of the really interesting stories is the way in which the um, national security establishment immediately says, well, these systems were crucial to cracking this case, and we can't totally tell you how and why and what happened, but really, you know, the New York subway bombings were averted by all this. And then it turns out, well, that's not really true. Um, The New York subway bombings were averted because, like, the British arrested a, you know, a, a terrorist who was friends with a friend of the New York terrorist, and it was very kind of old fashioned police work. Um... And I do think, you know, that's something that I think the press is more aware of and better at than they have been in in past ones of these, at knocking down the kind of first wave of excuse-making. One story that that you were, I think, very much out in front of, and I think because it played so much to who you are and what BuzzFeed is, is uh, very quick to analyze and uh, deconstruct Hillary Clinton's first tweet. What did you think of... (laughs) Uh, the, the former Secretary of, of State going that. on Twitter. Um, I mean, I think the thing with the Clinton operation is that they're incredible. They're very, very, very deliberate. Um, and so, you know, this was a, this was the tweet born of you know months of conference calls and <laughs> probably some Mark Penn polling polls. Yeah, and I think it revealed that you know they see her biggest vulnerability, and this isn't like rocket science to see this, but as her as her age, as her and and not not really her you know, her age quite as much as um, her, um, like the perception of her as a, as a character from the past, as somebody from the 90s. I mean, Obama ran against her when the slogan turned the page, um, and now it's eight years later. And so I think they're working very, very, very hard to make her seem like a person from the present. I mean, I think the way ultimately you succeed at that is it is it, what's new about her is it would be new to have a woman president, and that ultimately seems to me the kind of the answer to that question. But I think the big challenge to her is that Obama was elected by this coalition of young people and people of color, and it's not immediately obvious why she's the standard bearer for that coalition. And yet, isn't it possible that uh, the same gang that that crowded into the cave in Chicago uh, and gave the Democrats such a technological dominance over their rivals? I mean, the um, that they can create a new character out of her in a in almost a virtual uh, uh, avatar in a way she, that because so much of t- campaign 2016 might be waged online. I mean, I think certainly you need to have a you know. I mean, obviously, there's Twitter will be a central place where the political conversation happens, and it's important for her to be in it. And it's not 
And I think, you know, it's also says where authenticity is really important. I mean, she's also a very witty, funny, clever person, and she should just tweet. And not, I mean, right now it's, it's very stiff. And they had a tweet, and then they stopped, and they thought about it, and then they had a very kind of traditional promotional tweet. I mean, at some point they should just give her the phone and let her occasionally just write what she's thinking, and I think people would respond a lot better to that. I don't know if that's quite in their DNA. Talking about witty then, and clever, uh, you have video up on your, on BuzzFeed right now of Governor Chris Christie slow jamming the news with Jimmy Fallon. Let's hear a little bit of it. Now, look, I, I know this election is going to cost taxpayers some money, but these costs can't be measured against the value of having an elected member of the United States Senate. That's why I'm throwing my full weight behind this decision. Oh, 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 come on. Come on now, Christy Cream Donut. Come on. How, how you gonna be how you gonna be setting me up like that? It's it's too easy. It's it's not even funny. Isn't that what your audience says every night? Oh. Ouch. Yeah, that's right. It hurts. So step off, brother. Isn't that what your bathroom scale says every night? Ben Smith, what are your analytics telling you about how much your readers are eating this up today? Um, I mean, <laughs> Chris Christie, you know, it's funny. The Internet, you know, likes some politicians more than others. None, you know, as much as it likes Kanye West. But, um, <laughs> but Chris Christie is certainly, you know, a character whose forcefulness, you know, makes him, make, makes good video, and he knows it, and he's a guy following him around with a camera, you know, like looking for the next uh, viral video. Video is so much a part of what uh, these candidates will have to do in campaign 2014 and 2016. Uh, the speeches and lectures that I give start with George Allen, Allen and Makaka. You've announced this week uh, new writers on foreign policy, new writers on business. Uh, we've had ha- Hastings on the show before. So much of it is the print written journalism. How much is video playing into what BuzzFeed is today? We, you know, we're really pushing very hard on video at the moment. Um, we, we have a guy named Zay Frank, who's this online video pioneer based in Los Angeles, is running our video arm. You can check it out on youtube.com slash BuzzFeed video. Um, and really, I think, you know, we're trying to kind of figure out the kind of video that's going to work on the Internet. And I, and I really don't think it's going to be cable news transplanted to the Internet. It's, it's something really different. But we're, uh, we're figuring it out. It's, I mean, I do think, like, I mean, one of the really interesting things is that when people watch video, used to be during the middle of the day when they were at work, it has shifted to basically prime time. Like, the, we see the peak use of our, peak watching of our videos is during TV prime time, and it's all, it's mostly mobile, because people watch TV and are bored and have, have watched, and while they're during the commercial or while they're watching their spouse's show, they're watching YouTube videos on their phones. A couple of years ago, 2011, you've established uh, yourself at Politico, uh, which itself was revolutionary. But Jonah Peretti, who had founded uh, Huffington Post along with Ariana Huffington, calls you and says, I want you to come and run this thing called BuzzFeed. What's your first reaction? I had no idea what he was talking about. I mean, I'd never seen the site, and it was really confusing to me. But um, the thing that I guess sort of persuaded me was was that... um, I mean, they had spent years focusing on, on what people share and, and how content travels on the social web. And if you're a political reporter in like 2009, 2010, and I had written a blog in 2008, sort of felt like this blog was one of the you know dozen places that was really the center of the conversation in a really fun way as a reporter. And then you just felt during the healthcare debate, really, in 2009, 
the life gets sucked out of the blog. And that whole conversation moved to Twitter. And as a reporter, Twitter becomes the place you're looking for news and looking for the conversation, looking for stories you can advance. And as a, and and then, you know, when you write stories, it's where your stories get distributed. You look for who's retweeting them and how they're spreading on Twitter. I think it's true for beat reporters in politics, in tech, on very, in finance, on various beats. And so it, after I thought about it a little, the notion of going to a news organization that was really rooted in the social web, in Twitter and Facebook, and sort of assuming that your readers are going there rather than coming to your website even, um, made a lot of sense to me. Did you struggle with John at all about what you were going to – how the entity was going to continue to be named, or was it – BuzzFeed and it was going to stay BuzzFeed. Oh, I was. Uh, I don't think that was really up for negotiation. A lot um, of people already love BuzzFeed. Uh, and and so you'd say that that the flagship BuzzFeed.com is that. What does your analytics tell you about whether that's where people come and say, "I'm opening up the front page of the New York Times" versus "I'm going to the home page of BuzzFeed.com" versus "I'm seeing where my friends are drawing me via Facebook and Twitter and other social uh, intermediaries." A vast majority of our traffic. I mean. Probably more than eighty percent comes through side doors, although our homepage traffic has been growing a ton and is you know probably more than a lot of a lot of places but um but no, we you know Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest actually are the biggest or where we get our traffic and you did uh, announce this week uh, the hiring of uh, new reporters for both business and foreign policy. What's the plan for them and uh, and any other developments that we'll see from BuzzFeed over the summer? Yeah, you know I think that we're you know just the same way we've done politics, which I think is to you know assume that there's this on, online conversation on Twitter and elsewhere, and that the goal is not to kind of create a new destination, but more to be in that conversation and to be advancing that conversation and be making stuff that writing stories people want to share. I think applies more to foreign policy almost than anywhere else um, at the moment. Like that's there's a centralized global conversation around international affairs that's really interesting and lively and sophisticated. And Miriam Elder, this, the Guardian's Moscow bureau chief, who we, we hired, um, you know, is, is one of the really big voices in that conversation. I think it's going to be a lot of fun to kind of build a vertical around Twitter as the front page. For all of the uh, interest that had been increasing in BuzzFeed, Ben Smith, uh, were, you, were you at all taken aback by uh, the notoriety brought to you from the uh, Kevin Spacey House of Cards uh, video from the White House Correspondents Association and also the sort of follow-up coverage that you've got on Nightline and other places and the very fact that, that BuzzFeed is is becoming the story itself. I mean, you know, we were, when I was at Politico, we got a little of this. You know, you, you get to be the new, you, you do new you do new stuff, and you do good work, honestly, um, and, and, and do reporting. And particularly in an era when a lot of people on the internet were aggregating and kind of taking other people's stories and repackaging them. And if you focus on reporting, you know, it's kind of, you get attention and people are psyched about it. I mean, do you think at some point that's going to wear off? And we realize that and we just have to do good work and not just get by on being the new thing. Finally, Ben, for our listeners who, who follow you on Twitter, who uh, understand that news is always breaking on the site, can you shed a little more light on what your life is like? You know, we know nothing about Mike Allen, but, but do you have any uh, established sleep cycles that work for you? Because you're tweeting almost around the clock. Oh, I'm like, you know, I think I, I lead a, a more normal life. I, you know, I like I'm, you know, I have kids, and you know, usually spend the spend the mornings with them. Um, but yeah, I do. Uh, I do like Twitter, and and um, yeah, no, I don't. But I think, I mean, I think it's it's a lot of for a lot of beat reporters in particular. It's just there's always been this centralized conversation, whether it was like the boys on the bus or whether it was the blogosphere. But um, it's really nice to have it so conveniently 
centralized and crammed into your phone. And also now open to really any obsessive junkie who wants to participate on a fairly level playing field. Well, count our listeners among them. Ben Smith, editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS.